0: I think it's recording and, and, and yeah just I don't have anything written down I just I just wanted to sit and have a conversation with you about um, photography and, and uh, music so
1: um, put this
0: so musically somebody told me that you're a musician
1: yeah I, I play piano keyboards Okay. and I compose music and okay. I don't have my, uh, my setup set up right now but why is that because uh, I'm going back and forth between Fullerton and Yorba Linda and I'm more out in Yorba Linda and I don't have a <laughs> <Nice look. laughs> and I don't have a <laughs> 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 I don't have a place to set up the keyboard right now and connect it to the computer so
0: and that's what you do you you're using your keyboard are you getting the sounds from the computer or uh,
1: I have a I have a keyboard which is a a, a, a midi controller yeah, right and then um and then i have another keyboard that has all the sounds built in and then i have a, a two or three sound modules okay. that are basically synthesizers that which ones do
0: you own which sound modules do you own
1: uh you know the older ones i can't remember and the and the the newer one is a roland uh it's a high-end roland one but i can't think of the of the specific number on it at this point, so it just point. has like,
0: like old synth synth sounds and what strings and different.
1: It's got it, it's got about four thousand sounds in it. So mm-hmm. so it's got uh, all sort. It's got sound effects, it's got orchestra, it's got individual strings, every individual instrument that you could imagine. Right. A couple of dozen different pianos. Okay. Uh, right. Organs. All just. It's loaded with mm. sound. Did you?
0: Um, when, when did you, if, if you did, make a switch from, say, the acoustic piano to using a keyboard, or were you always somebody who just, you heard the synthesizer, you oh my God, I love that thing, you got into that. Was it one or the other? Or? No,
1: I was a piano guy, and I'm yeah. still a piano guy. I just love the sound of pianos, but I can, you know, I, I work in all the other instruments. Um, I started taking piano lessons when I was like seven years old. And so, and I took it all the way through high school, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I I I quit for a while, until my father found me um, a teacher that taught me how to um, improvise. Rather than just read music, uh, she taught me how to improvise things and how all the chord structures worked and and all that thing. And that's when I really fell in love with with making music. So. Hmm.
0: so, in the jazz format, improv- improvisation? Or? Ja- any, any. Just
1: any. It, it basically was just an overall instruction on how uh, chord structures and harmonics worked, and rather than read individual notes, I could see just a C minor, yeah. and I knew what the notes were, Available and I could get my hand, yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so, it, it, it just totally changed my, my life. Right, that's and it, I, to the point where I almost in college switched from a biology major to a, a music major, huh. but didn't. Right. And and it was good that I didn't. Mm, really. <laughs> yeah.
0: But but that's kind of cool. So like, what was it about? Because I'm a I'm a classically trained percussionist. I studied for you know six hours a day for
1: really yeah, most of my life. Yeah. Really. Oh yeah. I mean just. Because um, one, one of my uh, uh, college roommates uh, is a is a percussionist. He lives up in the valley, and he uh, he plays with the L.A. Phil. Okay. Yeah.
0: Not Mitch Peters.
1: No, John Magnuson is oh, okay. his name. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and and I find it really fascinating that you that when you got into, when you when you discovered improvisation that that somehow lit a light for you because it's so opposite of the structure of classical music. And, and
1: well it, it is and it isn't. I I mean if you if I were if I if I had the gift of somebody like Beethoven or Mozart th- they completely understand all of that improvisation. Otherwise they couldn't compose. Yes, absolutely. You and, have to learn and, all the and, rules, the structure yeah, of it before you write. Yeah. And I I got to be moderately good uh, back in the day not yep. so much anymore at sight reading um, but I always had trouble going outside of the the treble and bass staffs because I I <laughs> I, I could recognize the notes within the lines, the lines yeah. but once you got the little dashes above and below right. it was yeah. like
0: where am I I'm lost <laughs> <laughs>
1: so <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So, so like triple high C and... Yeah, it's like, well, it's, I'd have to go one, two... <laughs> <laughs> that slowed down your, uh, yeah, your performance. Yeah, but the improvisation part, then if I just saw a chord structure or I could recognize uh, that I was playing an E flat, then then I knew what the scales were and I knew what chords I could go to. And so then it was easy to find the notes either high or low. In a so, way, it was more globally
0: defined right in a way yeah right i understand that that's cool so do you have um did you record any of the stuff that you wrote did you write or did you just like improv and being no i I haven't
1: recorded in a long time that's why Mm -hmm. i'm and i'm hoping to get my setup going again Mm -hmm. but yeah no i did i did record a lot of things back in the day Mm -hmm. before uh back in the day when when before mp3 files and Mm -hmm. Uh, Destroyed the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the all the purely digital recording. I most of the stuff that I recorded was way back in the days of tape. Yes. And so. Yeah, you know, I I, um, I worked on a
0: project with my friend. I I grew up in the, near Cypress College, and um, I have a friend. He's a drummer. His name is John Wackerman. and he was he and I worked on a project with this Guy Kuzumi Watanabe. and somehow we got. Other work, working for Patrick Mraz.
1: Oh. Yeah. Oh, God, I love Patrick Mraz.
0: Yeah. So I got to spend <laughs> a lot of time with him, and we worked in his... Really? That, yeah. At that time, he had a studio called Time Code, and it was right there on... Um, it was in Los Angeles. I want to I say it was near um, Santa Monica and something. I can't remember. It was right near a, a Yoshinoya Bowl place. But anyways, <laughs> so I got to watch him. You know, I got to watch Patrick... Compose music and have all these wonderful musicians come in and work on his stuff, and you know he's just like a genius. I mean, he's like oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, He's he's big time. My, uh, I'm on Facebook. uh, One of my college roommates, who's also a a, a music guy, but as a as a living, he's a or to make a living, he's a psychologist. Uh, He challenged me to a, a a thing where we're. talking about albums that affected our lives mm. and uh, one of the ones that I that it is still maybe the the one of the most important albums that I've mm. heard right. is an album by Yes uh-huh. called Relayer oh, right. and and Relayer is the first Yes album that was made after the keyboardist Rick Wakeman left the group and Patrick Moraz joined it right. and it has the uh, what I still think is maybe the best rock song ever written mm-hmm. uh, and performed called The Gates of Delirium right. on it that's a famous and, song yeah. yeah and so and he's amazing yeah Yeah. and he brought unlike Wakeman he brought a more jazzy feel right to yes so right
0: yeah it was cool I, I think we might have worked at his studio for maybe three months or something and it was just you know like a kid in a candy store to watch him compose and to watch I mean, he's everything you would think a genius composer would be he's eccentric and smart and <laughs> you have this, I would love to have actually have a conversation with him I should probably, I should probably talk to somebody about that but um, uh, but uh, I'm trying to think. Is he still alive? I think he's still alive. I, d- I don't know. Yeah. I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, anyways. Uh, I, hopefully he is. Yeah. And he was
0: one was f- just a funny, wonderful Brilliant player. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and, and 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 a bit unorthodox in some of his approach. Like he would play some stuff almost. You know, it wasn't all like the piano player would play. He would he would sort of hammer at things and kind of. I don't know if that was for drama or if it sounds different if you do this.
1: It it depends on the keyboard, mm -hmm. probably. Uh, My keyboard and my my piano are, uh, obviously, pianos are touch sensitive. Right. A lot of keyboards, simply you just press it and it plays the note.
0: Note on, note off.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but mine is a, my MIDI controller is a, a hammer action, so it functions like a piano. Right. So if you hit it hard, Mm-hmm. you're louder and and the, the the fade is different and everything. You get a lot of the dynamic range you do the Yeah. You
0: get a lot of that. But it's not yeah. a piano, right? It's not exactly an acoustic piano sitting in your like No, your but room. it
1: has, but but it has th- the sound modules have these pianos built into them that are just amazing. Like I can get a for Grand and right. and I can get a Steinway Grand and I can get and they're not exact, but they're they're pretty, pretty stunning and, and to have the variety is just uh because if you're if you're working with other instruments the 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 particular piano sound is important to integrate properly you yep. know because different pianos are very different
0: yes yeah, and it would cost you so much money in the studio to bring a different piano in and to mic it and
1: yeah yeah and you know these these guys that play classical concerts the pianists like baronbaum or or you know you know any number of the the famous piano guys um, it's one thing if you're a violinist to travel around with your violin mm-hmm. it's another to travel around with your piano and they have their pianos shipped to the venues and set up and tuned for whatever they're they're gonna do at wow. disney concert hall or whatever can you imagine that's that? so cool that's a whole <laughs> ordeal i mean that's
0: piano mover and a tuner obviously and yeah that's a, that's a bit of a crew
1: yeah they don't just take the piano that the place has mm. they bring their instrument to it. And, it and probably not all of them but a lot of them do the top ones yeah wow
0: it's because they just know the way that one feels they just
1: Yeah, everyone has a different feel. I remember I I grew up on a Baldwin grand piano Mm -hmm. and when I was a kid the the two major ones were Steinway and Baldwin. And I I started out on a Baldwin and that's what I learned on and I never even touched a Steinway. Till years later, and I remember the first time I hit a Steinway. Mm-hmm. It was like, this just feels totally different. Mm. The sound is different. The feel of the keys, the pressure is different. Mm-hmm. It would take, uh, it would take time to really get used to playing mm-hmm. a piece that you were used to on one piano mm-hmm. on another piano. Right. You know,
0: like a lot of time, you have to really get adjusted.
1: Yeah, because it's mm-hmm. the, the whole touch thing. It's all different. Steinway is a. Uh, Baldwin is a harder touch, Steinway okay. is a softer touch and okay. you'd have to you'd have you to get used to your it. Yeah, you have to adjust everything that yeah. you do. Right. I didn't so. know that.
0: So now that everybody just has controllers and modules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and modules, <laughs> yeah. So what made you um, d- decide or or did you was it a thing where because you retired you decided to get into music in this way or was it just because you're going back and forth between these two places that you're not set up to do that you know you know I mean how much has music been a, a part of your life um, say when you were working were you able to compose I or... even
1: wanted to bring when I was at Cyprus I, I wanted to bring my one of my keyboards over there and put it in my office I never uh, never found time to, to do it and I always tried to get the uh, the division dean when they were getting rid of Keyboards and getting new in the music department. I tried to get them to lend me one, but they they never would. Um, Uh, Or I would have been playing piano over there all the time. I I try to play every day, so you do. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And because you love it, or because if you set it down, you're going to lose your chops, or both, or
1: mostly because I just love it. I just love to play. Right. I mean. Right. And when you sit down
0: to play, you know what do you? do you work on I just make stuff I just make, make stuff, stuff up. up yeah yeah and do you ever record that at all or just
1: I don't have the means to do it right yeah. now which is why I'm trying to get my the keyboard set up out there mm. my, my, my mother lives out in Yorba Linda and she's 93 oh and so I how kind wonderful. of take care of her that's awesome and uh, my house is about a mile from here but okay. I spend a fair amount of time out there with her so
0: right give me something to do when you're out there
1: yeah. yeah, and she's the one with the she's <laughs> the one with the Baldwin piano. So that piano is still there, and I can still play. But I, but I miss my my MIDI keyboard and my sounds. Right, right. So
0: that's cool. This is not a, a just just drinking. You know, when I do these, people come up and sometimes will talk to us, or if I'm in a different environment, I actually am using. This is a this is a um, environmental portrait in an audio sense. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's a two-shot. It works shot. for me. You and I we're having <laughs> our our photograph taken in an audio sense, and and all the the cars going by we're gonna hear that. You listen to this with headset, you will hear the cars go from your mic to
1: my mic. Really? Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of neat.
0: <laughs> and our voices will be a little louder because we're we're close. Yeah. It's proximity, just like a, like with with cameras.
1: And yeah. I love this little recording thing. I just like the look of it. Yeah, this is the little
0: zoom. Um, This is like one of the, it's been around forever and everybody uses it. Look, it's got, you can read how it's going in. Of course, like anything digital, I believe this has limiters and compressors, which I do not have engaged. Um, But this one will do up to four tracks. So I don't know if you remember those old Tascam four-track tape machines. Yeah. Um, which cost like sixteen hundred bucks, like in nineteen eighty. This, <laughs> yeah. this was only this was only like two hundred dollars, and it does like four tracks, and it writes to these um, SD cards. Wow! Or it can go right to a computer. It can become an audio interface if you stuck this in your here and put it in your laptop USB. Then these would be like an audio interface. Huh. So, yeah. And so um, it's fun. You could do. You could actually make songs on that and you can even over overdub and stuff yeah all in that little can you record bonus.
1: the tracks separately yes okay
0: yeah, you can yep so it's a little multi-tracks it's a multi-purpose multi-track you can do stereo i just got it for this just to talk to people yeah yeah um but um so yeah don't feel pressure to always talk or don't you know, if you want to take a drink if you have to go to the bathroom just I don't even off. know where
1: the bathrooms are here, <laughs> <laughs> or they have them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's a nice park. It is. There's a little bathroom over there. Look, there's a, one of those. Oh, a porta potty. Yeah. Or I don't know if that's on. Yeah. It's very peaceful here.
1: Yeah, it's nice here.
0: So how do you how do you um, get or, or did you find a formula for being retired yet? Is there a
1: formula? No, it's just. Kind of day by day, I guess. Uh, it's it's a, it's it's kind of an odd life after you've worked for. I, I was never from the time I was sixteen years old and I got my first job. I was never unemployed, even a day until I retired. So it's it's kind of weird, right, to not be going to work. It, it's not that I. I miss it. Uh, Cypress College is very different now than it was when I was there. <clears throat> At least the photo department is. And is, yeah. um, I think that I I probably left when it was the, the right time yeah. to leave because I, I I just I don't think that I would be happy there now. But I was extraordinarily happy there for 31 years full time and and. Um, I, I don't necessarily miss the, the classroom part of it but I miss talking to the students individually and I miss the staff that we had the faculty and staff that we had when I was there because we we built I think a, a pretty terrific program over the the many years that I was there and I Sadly, it's kind of falling apart at this point. So, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you're over there at all.
0: I couldn't even... This you know, this, this semester I had to take a um, color theory class because I couldn't even get... All the classes I tried to take failed because, you know, they changed it back to the thing with the labs and the class. Yeah. And so me having kids, my kids are pretty young. I can't stay there from 2 in the afternoon until 9 at night.
1: Yeah. Well, th- and that's why we had the format that we had before mm-hmm. so that you could come a day and you could schedule your lab time when it worked for you. Right, And that just kind of, when they had to change it back, and I understand why they had to, it was a money thing, but that that format was the kind of format that college had when I was in college. And that's, God, that's half a century ago. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't work for now. No. people's lives are structured in a very different way now and so we we thought that we had a pretty good customer service way of scheduling the classes but unfortunately the the ed code is it has not caught up to, to what we did and when when the enrollment of the college sank a bit then all of a sudden we were costing them money and mm-hmm. and they changed they it. saw it yeah yeah well.
0: And it and that structure too, by having the class all with the lab, it messed up that environment of sitting in the lab and maybe meeting people and having conversations with yes, like you and I are. Like, having, yes, exactly. Which helps artists.
1: Right. Nurtures. Right. nurtures and they and, and they when they changed that structure, they limited they, they wanted you to come to class and go away when that lab time was done. And I'm all that's just stupid for what we do. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I, I remember when I first got going in photo. Uh, you know, I I was a student at Cypress, and I, I went through the program at Cypress back in the '70s. And, and and when I first got going in the in the photo biz, you know, I was I was used to the the normal uh, work day being an eight hour day. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when I when I came out of photo school and I started assisting and, and started to get my own business going, the normal photo day. Is a ten-hour day, okay. and it usually stretches to a twelve or fourteen-hour day. Say, yeah, because nothing <laughs> <laughs>
0: you plan on it, Dina. You know? <laughs> yeah, you hope it's going to be ten, but it hardly never, ever is. It Never is. Yeah. yeah,
1: and and so, and that was like six days a week, and that's 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 how I worked for years, and you had these extraordinary interactions with people. Uh, that that went on for you know many hours every day, and so if you were assisting, uh, a lot of times you were one of a number of people that was assisting in a particular yes. studio. Sometimes you were on your own, and I did a lot of custom printing, darkroom stuff. So I was a, a, a darkroom assistant for a number of people because I was a really good printer, and um, y- you you get a regular kind of not necessarily a regular schedule, but a regular presence with people for a long time. And you have R- an opportunity yeah. to, to, you know, yeah, establish a rapport and, and learn and get going. Uh, you know, Greg Zajac. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. So, so I worked for Zajak. I was an assistant for Zajac and he and I go back 40 plus years. Um, and I learned basically, I, I credit Greg with my mm. learning how to light stuff in the studio. Yeah, he's a. Because he's really, really good at amazing. that. And I, and I learned, assisting for him, I learned how to light stuff. I learned how to light stuff that is, that is like impossible mm. to light. Mm. And he had a way of, of figuring it out mm. and, and making it work. Mm. You know, like a standard uh, standard tabletop thing is a dark to light. So it's yep. it's dark and a great age to light on the bottom. Right. Okay. I remember we had a job that required light to dark. Okay. And that is, that's a bitch. Uh, light to dark. Light to dark. Light on the top, dark yeah. on the bottom. I'm trying
0: to think about that, yeah.
1: And man, and he figured it out. He figured out a way to do it. We we got it going. It took us uh, most of most of a a day to do the one shot, Mm -hmm. Uh, but but he did it. But he did it. Yeah, he got it figured out.
0: I I took and I will never
1: I will never forget. I still have that built into my brain that light setup and how it worked. You remember how that went? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because right. we used to, you know, when I was doing this back in the studio in the days, we didn't do digital. We didn't have Photoshop. No. None of that stuff existed. So if you wanted it to look a certain way, you had to make it happen. 100% optical. In camera. Yeah. In yeah. Camera. yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I took his class
0: because I went to your retirement party, and you, had, you made a statement about how he was the best lighting guy you ever... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so I took his... I took one of the classes that he was offering just just because of what you said and you were right I mean um, just like a ninja like a a Yoda (laughs) yes because you don't because he doesn't if you just met the guy you wouldn't really know that
1: no he's very kind of unassuming and he's very calm and Mm -hmm. uh, but he's a really good guy he's a great photographer and uh, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to work with him and for him right so yeah and that's an example of the kind of um
0: teachers you had at that in that school I mean yes it was astounding the of yeah. experience re-
1: really good people and they were well matched to the classes that they were teaching you know like Zajac taught lighting stuff and for the, he taught beginning too but he also taught the the studio classes and he's good at it and he he actually uh was before he became a photographer he was a school teacher so he was good at teaching oh, okay and, uh,
0: that's, that's a skill set in itself to be a teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right.
1: And he's patient. He, he's one of the most patient people I've, I've ever met because I, <laughs> you, when you are in a studio environment and you have art directors and uh, uh, ad people there, um, you have to, be, and maybe client people, uh, you, you have to be. Patient and yes. you know, customer is always right. Yes, and,
0: no matter even if you know, it, even if it uh, doesn't agree with your artistic sense. right,
1: right. And I, 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 could always tell when he was upset, but I, nobody else would ever know. You know, he had a there's a in poker there's a thing called a tell, oh, uh-huh. where if you're if you're bluffing or, or as you play. There's everybody, not everybody, because pe- pe- professional players will learn how to cover it up. But a tell is something that you do that gives away <laughs> <laughs> what you're thinking. And, uh-huh. and you'll repeat it again and again and again. If you bluff, you are you might move a finger a certain way. or you know.
0: If good players can sent, read, they, they read. They
1: read that and they can see it, and so they work hard to, to cover it up. And, and, and Greg had a tell when he was upset. He would, you'd never know, but I I knew it. He would be talking to somebody and he would just go, "Uh uh-huh. And that's it? Uh Uh-huh. And that, he was upset. You knew? Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Because it doesn't sound, you know. No. No. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, I took one of your classes, uh, I took your um, intermediate class and you I talked about this on a few of these podcasts. It was it was was your your uh, you did this thing with us where you had us bring in a a cloth. Yeah. And you told us the date the session before. You say bring in a cloth, and you know all of us overthinker photographer. What kind, Rob? Is it blue? Is it (laughs) translucent? And you said it doesn't matter. Just long as it's this long. What? Okay. Are we going to use this as a flag or something? Just bring the cloth and your camera. And so you know that prompt. And and you said that you might take the best, one of the best pictures you've ever taken in your life. You know, and you made us put it on our face. Yeah. We walked around campus, and and sure enough, I took one of the greatest pictures of my life. So what I got out of that prompt was that we can overthink things, that we can mess it up, we can take the spontaneity out of a thing. What what, what was the intention of that
1: prompt? The the intent was that you, you make, as a photographer, you make pictures in response, not just to what you see. Um, I mean, that's a large part of it. People, uh, in terms of our sensory input, Mm -hmm. about 80% of our sensory input is from sight, unlike a lot of other animals that don't see very well, like rhinoceros can hardly see. Uh, And and so their input is from sound and smell and that kind of thing. So what I wanted was to take away that sight but to still have you make photographs, and and the camera can you know you you can respond to sound and smell uh, in a in a pretty in, in a more intense way. Like if you go to the beach and you go there with your camera, you see the beach, but you also smell the salt air, and all of that creates an atmosphere for you to. To work. Mm-hmm. If you take away the sight, then you have the other senses that that um, you, in a sense, they don't become stronger. But I saw this on a TV show the other day, where there was a one of the characters on the TV show was uh, blind. Okay. And the the conversation went. So when you lose your sight, do the other senses? get stronger to make up for it and, okay. and her response was no not really you just pay more attention to them that's interesting and I, I thought that's a really interesting way to think about it and when you take away the sight and you walk around and at least you, you feel somewhat safe like you're not going to fall in the duck pond out there or something <laughs> uh then you can you can respond to things you can respond to like I'm here with my camera and I can respond to touch I can respond to the car going by. I can respond to a smell or a sound. Okay, right. you know, there's a little kid over here right now, and if he shouted out or something, mm-hmm. um, you could just kind of Find point that. and see. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily get this classically composed thing. No. But in a sense, that's that's potentially really good, because you're not kind of overthinking it or, or applying the the visual rules or guidelines that you have in your head to the frame you're just mm-hmm. reacting yes and and maybe your percentage lowers in terms of effective pictures but sometimes that spontaneity just leads to incredible things
0: that's amazing you know?
1: I mean, somebody like Cartier-Bresson, who's one of my, my photographic heroes, is known for these decisive moment photographs. And uh, uh, Gary Winogrand, also, yeah. the late Gary Winogrand. And, and a lot of times, he's not even looking. It's not that he's blindfolded, but but they're so in tune with the machine that they don't really need to look in it. They can just hold it and click, click, click. Uh, and they come up with these uh, wonderful images that are timed perfectly. And I never thought of myself as being able to do that much. Um, but it, it's something that, it, it, I can do it, and it's something that you, you just kind of, it just kind of happens. Uh, the, the Legacy Project, which I have been part of for 15 years, Well, we we had a show in Beijing of the great picture, the large photograph. Yes. um, So we were in Beijing for a week and we walked miles every day. And I, I went out by myself. We went out with the other guys with the cameras and all of a sudden I started just seeing things that were about to happen. And you could you could sense uh, like the, I have this one photograph of a woman who's walking by in front of a window, mm-hmm. and I saw it. the The window had some. I, I it had some sort of design on it, and and the part of the design or the poster or whatever had been torn off okay. in patches. And the patches went. Dun, 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 dun. And I saw her coming, and I lifted the camera and just right when she walked in front of the window. And what happened was she's kind of blurred as she's coming by me, but those little patches mm-hmm. are coming right out of her mouth. <laughs> and it it's just, I, I don't know if it's something that I i grew into after making photographs for so long. I was always very deliberate about making yeah. pictures. yeah. And then all of a sudden there was this, decisive moment spontaneity that kind of jumped out things yeah. just presented themselves at the at the right moment I have another one from Beijing where there's um, I just walking along the sidewalk and I look across the street and there's a bus stop across the street and you know at bus stops they have advertisements on right. the on the back right and I, I look across there and there are these uh, big posters of these gorgeous, beautiful white women. Okay. And it's an ad for makeup or something like mm-hmm. that. And standing in front of that mm-hmm. at the bus stop are these more... I don't know. I, I don't want to sound insulting or something, but th- these more <laughs> these more regular-looking sure. Chinese ordinary, women. Sure, ordinary, yeah. Right. And, and they had... It was the end of the day. They were obviously waiting for the bus to, to go home. They were wearing jeans and, and they were... Uh, if the if the the poster is behind me yeah. and i 'm over there the 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 poster is looking square into the lens, and these women are standing at the bus stop, looking this all of them looking that way, mm-hmm. waiting for the bus and they 're wearing jeans something. and they got yeah. their purse and I thought w- what an amazing um, sort of counterpoint yes. with contrast these. What, here we are in China, and you have a poster with White models which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then these, these Chinese women that, that were, you know, just your average right, everyday person, like looking nothing like that, yes. and it was just perfectly timed there, they're standing, and they're just waiting for the bus. And I, I always loved that notion of decisive moment, but I never really thought of myself as doing it till I was in China. And now these things pop up all the time to me. So you were like in a zone? Yeah. For one thing, it was... One of the things that happened when we made... The, when, during the Legacy Project was the transition, the major transition from film to digital. When we started in the Legacy Project, it was 2002, and everybody was still pretty much doing film and a little bit of digital. Okay. But over the time that, that we worked... It transitioned to digital, okay. and once once it was there, my my main camera until I was 50 plus years old was a 4 x 5 view camera, mm-hmm. and you don't do spontaneous things with a with a view right. camera, so not on purpose. No, <laughs> no. Although I I actually have decisive moment 4 x 5 images too, but not not as many. But it, once it transitioned over to digital, and I and I got my first real good digital SLR, mm-hmm. and the image quality was so good, yeah. it, it allowed for you to just go, boom, right. it, rather than pull the legs on a tripod, set the camera on it, get under the dark cloth, yeah. and do which I loved, yes, but it, it changed changed the world, right, digital okay. did.
0: Did did Cartier, was there another component of him? You know, would it be that he had a fine art background? Did he, that
1: you know, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that much about him personally. I just have always loved the work. He was a, a founding member of Magnum, uh, right. photojournalist, and uh, you know, journalism people are oriented toward that instant thing. But yeah. he he just had an uncanny knack for anticipation because if you if you try to react to something that's happening you will be late exactly you have to meet it so you have to see it coming right so you can push the button at the right time and he just had an uncanny knack for that i know that um jerry winogrand also
0: right right so do you do that ever these days you do you because it sounds like street photography to me. It is, yeah. 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 So, do you do that to this day at yeah. all? Yeah.
1: I yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. Because now I can. I, I used to have to walk around with the view camera attached to the tripod and have the whole thing slung over my shoulder and then have a bag. Right. And that just takes forever.
0: To and it takes all the spontaneity out of it. It does. Of people, because you you're you're a scene. You you got this gigantic machine and you're.
1: Yeah, yeah, and people, you know... They act differently. They do. They come up to you. And what is that? What are you doing? And th- that... <laughs> I kind of liked that when I first got going. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, uh, gets you attention. Yes. But after a while, it's better to be unassuming.
0: Right. Fly on the wall.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Winogrand used to... Uh, he was... He, in, in many ways he was not unassuming he would come up to people and you, you know how everybody has their personal space uh-huh. he would come up to people and just step into their personal space hmm. that he never met before mm-hmm. like if if you and I were having this conversation mm-hmm. he'd walk right up here okay and then we'd get uncomfortable because who the hell are you yes and then he would make the picture mm-hmm. and he'd hold the camera so that because as soon as you do this, you know there's a picture going to be taken. Yeah. He wouldn't do that. So he would just hold the camera down here and right. when you did something, the button would push. I remember that. And yeah. didn't,
0: didn't he, wasn't he the one that acted like the camera was broken many times? If he's going to take your picture, oh, this darn camera need... Yeah, and because he wanted you to act natural. Yeah. And then he'd get a few shots in before he even when he does that he's not even taking a shot.
1: Right. And Edward Weston did that too. He did that with an 8x10 view camera. Oh, okay. okay he right. had he had an 8x10 view camera in the studio and he would do portraits mm-hmm. and the the people would be sitting there and he'd be uh, 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 and and they would because an 8x10 view camera with film holders and all that uh, was unfamiliar yes. to people. They wouldn't know what was going on. Yes. And so he'd be going all around it, and, and they would at some point get uh, impatient and say, "Well, when are we going to start?" And that's when he would say, "Oh, we're done." <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're done. <laughs> but everybody now knows the sound of a shutter, mm-hmm. and you, you can't fire a camera shutter without somebody recognizing that a picture's being made, know, right. right. like on your phone um, the phone has the same sound, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. just you can turn it off. Yes, right. So you can be completely clandestine. You can just right. be taking pictures and nobody's going to know, mm-hmm. unless you take the phone and put it up here. Yep. Then that's the giveaway. Right. You know.
0: Right. So when they're holding a camera and they're walking around and they're, cause I do this with skateboard photography, but I'm using a fish, so it's a gigantic shot. But so they know, like if they're if they used to using a 35 mil lens. They know just when I'm holding it here, this is where the 35 is, and they kind of in the yeah. memorize that basically. They've seen it so many times, they just can just hold it anywhere and sort of yeah. know what they're gonna get. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, they don't have to look in there. They know what's gonna be there. I mean, the horizon might be slightly off or sure. something. Sure. But but that adds in that sense. That adds to the spontaneity. But look at that car.
0: Oh, how cool. This is a wonderful little, it's like a shortcut, isn't this, the street? This kind of a Yeah,
1: street. I don't even know the name of it. I, I don't know if it's a continuation of Yorba Linda Boulevard, or- You when you get
0: off the freeway, you come this way, and then
1: you go here, and it's a shortcut to certain parts of Fullerton over here, because I used to go to a skate park
0: in Brea quite often.
1: Yeah, yeah it's a shortcut. It, rather than turn left on State College and uh-huh. go down to Dorothy Lane or down Chapman, this cuts you kind of diagonally through. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice little park. And it
0: spills out into like a little neighborhood right over here, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a Catholic church over there, and uh, right, on the and there's Acacia Elementary School, oh, and right. um, and then it's housing.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. This is a wonderful spot. Wait, to, I don't know if you're going to hear this or not, but the plane's going to be on our <laughs> image, and the cars are in our image, our audio image. But um, so now when I when I um, When I did when I took your class, we did the blindfold thing. I, you know, I processed the images and I cut them up and and I was like, I don't know if I got my best shot, you know. And then I showed them to you, and you looked at it for like two seconds and you said that one. It was just a picture of a man, kind of in the shot. He was sort of at a diagonal, and so I went and printed it, and then you you got me. I'd show it to you and you told me brighter, darker, change the filter, whatever, and we got it. It was pretty good. And when I printed it, and you held it in your hand, you went like that, and you like that, and I, you know, <laughs> flipped it over. And I was like, you know, I just became a fan of yours when that happened. <laughs> well, that's your, very flattering. Of your eye, you know, like, um, what do you figure developed that for you? Did you take art classes? Do you just have an eye thing? Do you look at a lot of paintings? Like, why, why is it that when you look at an image you can see this thing that I can't see
1: well I don't know that you can't see it I I think maybe that comes over a period of time Uh, and it's all the things that you mentioned it's art classes it's experience it's learning the compositional guidelines Um, uh, art school um, teaches you if, if you're open to it it teaches you many different ways of looking at things, and I'm a big fan of abstraction. And abstraction deals with how, in many ways, with how things are mm-hmm. arranged within the rectangle or whatever shape you're, you're working with. Okay. And they just become shapes rather than things that you attach, that, than a specific object that you attach a meaning to. You know, like a, a person doesn't have to be. A person, they can be a shape in the in the composition, Um, and when I first got started in photography, um, I I was exposed initially to Edward Weston, Ansel Adams, Brett Weston, those, those the West Coast F64 people. And one of, the, one of the ones that I was most attracted to was Brett Weston because the images were generally more, they weren't less detailed, but they were more intense and more contrasting. Mm. And there were some that were abstraction images or abstract images that I, I really struggled to figure out. and be, Because I think photographers all want to go, well, what's that? What is that? We're locked into that somehow, and, mm. and I would look at the picture and I go, "There's something odd about this. something that doesn't make sense here." And suddenly, I, I, I remember having a book open, uh, and I, it, it was just open on a table. And I went to do something else, and I came from the other side and I looked at it, and I saw it upside down. And then I realized that he was making them upside down. (laughs) And it just it just went ding. Light bulb. Light bulb. He was intentionally take he was making the print, but when he would mount it and mat it, it was upside down on the board. So when you looked at it, you were seeing something that was more mysterious because you were seeing it upside down, you didn't necessarily, you didn't recognize that it was upside down. Mm-hmm. Right. You were like, how, how does that
0: work? How do you make that picture?
1: And it and it allowed you to ask questions. And if and if pictures, rather than just looking at it and going, oh, if, if pictures create questions in your mind, you will look at them longer and you will become more involved with them. And so I just kind of started Turning things, and and in particular the <laughs> blindfold ones, because we're used to seeing something and making a photograph. Yeah. You had no clue what you were photographing yeah. if you were blindfolded. <laughs> right. You just made a, made a picture. Just making pictures. So you you had the ability then to just treat it not as something that you captured from the world, but it's just a picture. Right. And so now, how are you going to work with just the picture? Because that's all it is to you. You don't have any. Uh, Preconceived notion.
0: When I made it, I didn't have a preconceived notion. No, because you didn't know what I didn't you know made. Look like. Yeah. That's so cool.
1: And I, I don't, I, you know, I don't remember the the particular class that you were in, but I know that when we did that assignment, a lot of times people literally would have the camera and would feel their way around. Okay. And they would touch trees or something, and oh. then they would. Oh, I didn't you know, do that. Uh, yeah. So. Everybody, everybody, kind of took to it in a little. I just bit believe that way. there's some mysterious truth to what you're telling us. I just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, hopefully there was. <laughs> I, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. But the, that assignment became kind of famous on campus because uh, people would see us out, <laughs> uh, people with cameras and blindfolds, and it didn't make sense. <laughs> but it does. To them, but it, but it does make sense. <laughs>
0: Well, I loved it. It was uh, it affected my my approach, you know. And well, doing
1: you know skateboard stuff, you have to be quick, and you have to be spontaneous, yep. and you have to have, but you have to have all the stuff kind of built in. You have to you have to be able to do things without thinking it through. Yep. It's just an automatic. It is. You know, because that's decisive moment. It is photography. It is. Right.
0: I mean, I, I because I'm a skateboarder, if, if we're in a half pipe and I'm shooting something like Tony Hawk, I can tell what he's going to do by me, close to me, by what he does over there. Because they have to get ready to come and do the trick. Yes. So where they put their feet, if they're close together or if they're wide apart, if they do a certain trick where they jump in the air, that's because they're trying to get more speed. And I, I have a pretty good idea they're going to do an air in front of me that way. So I'm always reading them way ahead. like. Music. When you sight read, you kind of read ahead. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So similar thing. Um, But yeah, that that. um, How about color theory? Do you have any thoughts on color theory, like how it applies to photography or?
1: I. I only on an unconscious level, I think. Um. Like again, when I first got involved in photography, the people that I that first inspired me were black and white people. Mm-hmm. and I w- I was a color person, yeah. although I, I and I still make a lot of black and white photographs more mm-hmm. more so now in recent years. Mm-hmm. But I was a color person and I, so I responded more to that. Mm-hmm. And when I got involved in photography, particularly in the arts, color was not cool right? Um, it, it was a rarity. in fact, I remembered somebody, somebody recommended that I show work to a, a curator uh, at a gallery and I <clears throat> so I made an appointment and I went over there and <clears throat> and uh, showed showed work to this guy and he he was polite and patient and went through all the pictures and looked at them and when he had looked at them all he you know I was kind of looking like well so what do do are you do you want to give me a show or something like that i didn't ask the question specifically but he just looked at him and i said i i I think i said sort of well what do you think and he said well they're color (laughs) (laughs) you know in my head head, i'm going yeah i'm aware (laughs) Uh, and he said we 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 wouldn't show color here so Hmm. Hmm. Uh,
0: so it was looked down upon
1: it was looked down upon, yeah hmm. yeah it was, it was the, like the bastard stepchild of <laughs> photography in, back in the 70s and for, in some sense for relatively good reason because color processes although they'd been around for a while color processes were largely not permanent they would, so they, they, would as they change. would change over. Yeah, wall. like sit on the wall. Uh, they were sensitive to light, and that would change the colors. It wasn't until a thing called Cibachrome came out, um, which ultimately became Ilfachrome, um, that that color processes were permanent. But Cibachrome was difficult to uh, to process. It was a direct positive color thing so you used slide film rather than color negative film mm-hmm. and you printed it onto this ultra shiny super glossy uh, paper and it was very contrasty okay. and you had to very often you had to make uh, masks for your individual transparencies that, right? that would reduce the contrast okay. so, so it's it was very very dark room intensive stuff I don't know if you I don't know how long you were around there. I don't know if you ever met um, Jerry Birchfield. No. Uh, Jerry and and maybe you met Mark Chamberlain. I don't know. No, I didn't meet Mark. Uh, and Mark no. just passed away too. That's so what I heard. Yeah. Uh, Jerry and Mark had a, a lab down in Laguna Beach called BC Space Birchfield Chamberlain, and they specialized in doing uh, Cibachrome printing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if the, this is what happened or not. Jerry Jerry's hair turned from dark to silver at a very young age, at a, at a and okay. um, you know like but when he was thirty. Okay. And um, <laughs> he I I know that in the darkroom they they did hand they hand processed the prints. And the superchrome chemistry was pretty obnoxious yes. stuff. And he yeah. would stand over the, the the tank and be lifting the print, and he'd be breathing those fumes. I don't oh. know if that's what so made his hair turn white an or not. environmental. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we didn't think about that crap back in those days. We Like, in, in black and white, um, m- most of us who were sort of classically trained in black and white did developer stop fix, then a second fix, and then we would generally tone the prints in a, a toner that's based on selenium. Okay. Well, selenium is, a, in, in trace amounts, is a required nutrient. Um, but in non-trace amounts, it's a toxic okay. thing. Mm-hmm. And we would have our hands mm-hmm. in these trays of selenium toner sure. all day long.
0: What goes on your skin goes in your body. It's absorbed through your
1: skin. Yeah. And... You know, ho- hopefully it's do- not going to kill me. I, I haven't, t- I haven't touched selenium <laughs> in good. decades. <laughs> <laughs> but I-, I remember thinking about it, and even the developer, the-, the the print developers that we that we used to use, you know, people use tongs. I never could do tongs. I always had to have my hand in the tray, yeah, and it- with the liquid. And I- and-, and I remember, um, I-, I don't remember which hand it was now, but I remember the developer. That I was using turned my fingernails black. Really? Yeah. So I had one hand that I had all black fingernails. <laughs> that, was, that could be
0: construed as a cool thing if you're a certain age, you know. In it, back day. in the day, yeah. <laughs> Why are your fingernails? Oh, it's
1: the developer that I use. And oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Cool, huh? Right. <laughs> And and that was a, there was there was a developer I didn't use it. There was a developer called Amidol, which um, which is what Weston used, mm-hmm. and his fingernails and Brett's fingernails too, were jet black, oh. more so than mine. I mean they so were like it, you, they you, were black like your T-shirt.
0: Oh, so do you reckon it dyed it, or did it did it have some interaction with the actual metaphysical part of your body? Why <laughs> you <did> couldn't <laughs> you
1: couldn't scrape it off? You Couldn't okay no, so. Hmm. So, yeah, I just changed the... Wow, that's the, a little scary. <laughs> ...the protein, you know. But you love that,
0: didn't you? I mean, that, I, the other story I tell about you is that you helped me print a photo on one of those Epson printers, and, like, what you did with that thing, with just, like, levels and maybe a curve thing, which I've saved, I have it on my computer to this day, um, it was just miraculous, you know? I mean, I mean, I guess my question is, does it help a photographer to print?
1: Yes. Prints are, I think, extraordinarily important. Uh, but but a lot of presentation today is just electronic. It, it What helps you is understanding how tonal relationships work and how colors can be intensified or less intensified. And, and that's something that the digital toolbox gave us. We didn't have that in a darkroom area. Like in black and white, you could deal with tonal relationships, contrast, and yes. that. In color, you didn't have much control. You had control over color to a large degree, okay. but not tonal relationships. Well, really. You just got what you got. Okay, And that was one of the problems with Cibachrome was that it was very contrasty, and in order to shrink it so that you had a manageable range from dark to light, Dynamic you had range, to mask yeah. your, your film. Well, when the digital box came out, you could apply everything to black and white and color, and you could control the tonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember w- when I was, again, when I was just getting going on stuff, uh, w- we had some students up, up in Carmel, um, a- and we were at Brett Weston's house. Mm-hmm. And Brett was known for having these just beautiful, luminous, kind of intense contrast, but beautiful, luminous, silvery-looking prints. And somebody, one of the students asked him about it. Said, How do you get those beautiful silvery looking tones in your prints? Mm-hmm. And they were hoping for, I know that they were hoping for a, a darkroom techie answer okay. to it. And what they got was the, the only really good answer, but it didn't help. And that was... He, he he had an unusual way of of speaking. I can't do a real good imitation of him, but he they asked the question and he looked at him and he goes, "Well, that's just the way I see it." <laughs> and, and it was like, "Yep." <laughs> and they were like, "Uh huh." That wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> Not what I want. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I thought I thought God, that's just amazing, and. And it's perfectly true. You have to develop this eye that that allows you to see. And l- when you print digitally, every every paper that you might try yep. is going to react differently right. to the image. And you have to make adjustments right. to the image to get what you want on that piece of paper. Right. Yes. You know.
0: Yeah, I uh, felt like when, when you showed me that, I felt like, uh, I, I felt... There's a correlation between audio engineering and photography in that when you record a drum set, I'm a drummer, it's all compromised. You put mics on, there, you put compressors on the mics, you record the drum set. It doesn't sound like a drum set if you sat next to a drum set and listened to it. So now it's on the tape, I'm talking tape days, and then you're going to put that drum set into the mix while there's frequencies in the drum set that mess with the bass if you have too much of this yeah. Thing that makes it sound like a drum, so you got to start taking away stuff. Yeah. The drum set sounds uh-huh. like, so the bass can come up, and you don't want to stump on the vocals, and etc. So by the time you have this mix on a record, on vinyl, yeah, it's this huge compromise. Yeah, I felt like printing was a similar.
1: It's not. It's not necessarily a compromise. I don't think it's a. It's making something that's appropriate. And that meets the, the the goal that you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, Ansel Adams used to say that, he, he was a musician also, he was oh. a classically trained That's right. pianist. That's right, yeah. And um, he, he used to, his analogy was, the negative is the score. Yes, I've heard okay? that, yeah. And the print is the performance. I like that. <laughs> and, and so the performance can change. And, and his, his most famous photograph, Moonrise Hernandez, uh, New Mexico, changed wildly from the early days when he printed it to the end. And it, it, it's known for this, inten- this little moon in a big expanse of black sky with some clouds low in there. Mm-hmm. Well, that, if you just took the negative and put it in the enlarger and printed it, that isn't what it looked like. Okay. The sky was a middle gray, and okay. there were more clouds. But eventually, through his working with it over the years, it became more and more and more dramatic. Mm. Okay. And he, he had a print um, that had uh, gotten misplaced through the darkroom sink and it sat in the somehow it sat in the bottom of the sink mm-hmm. for days. Okay. And that can happen. Yeah. And uh, and he he found, he found it after days and looked at it and goes, "Wow. That's pretty interesting." And <laughs> and it, it was because all these chemicals had reacted with it cuz he'd printed many many things. All these chemicals had reacted with it. And um, He the the one that he pulled out of the bottom of the sink was a one of a kind. It's not you know one of the nice things about potentially about photography is that you can repeat. Yes. Okay. It's not like an oil painting where there's the painting and if it's gone if you sell that painting that's it. It's gone. Yeah. Uh, Although they make prints from them and that kind of stuff, but Mm -hmm. um, but a photograph you can print again and again and again. Right. Uh, this one, though, because it had sat in the bottom of the sink for days, was a one of a kind image, yeah. and it was all scrambled and stained and weird. And he just was spontaneous enough to say, "Okay, this is Holocaust out over Hernandez," <laughs> and because it was a, I saw it, and, and it was a bizarre looking print. Uh-huh. I don't, and I don't know if the family still has it. Huh. You know, their his generation is all gone at this point, right. but his kids are. Are still alive. So, okay. anyway,
0: and you could never re- obviously replicate that if that became no. Something. And I
1: used to, this used to happen at Cyprus. People would l- get you know that grid in the sink. Yep. Okay, prints would go under that. Oh. And then they would sit there for days, <laughs> and, and stuff I would, would flow
0: over them. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah.
1: And I would find them. I have a whole collection of them. That they're, they're just these amazing, wonderful-looking images that are completely. Accidental and have no connection to the original intent of the picture, but they're extraordinarily beautiful. They're metallic, they're gold and coppery, shiny, and yeah, they're really cool. Isn't that in a sense your your uh,
0: your prompt about the blindfold? Because you know, in uh, this art class I'm taking, which I'm horrible at art, they have us make mixed colors on a palette, and we have to paint a thing to show different color theories. Uh-huh. I always like the palette better than my picture. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. You know what I mean. I could go there because I had no yeah. intention of making anything. As I'm doing this, I'm not fouling it up with my judgment, and I'm just thinking I'm doing a thing here and yeah. over here. This wonderful thing. Yeah,
1: that's the nature of of expressionistic work, is that it's it's not about the it's not about what you're painting. It's about how you're doing it. Oh. Okay. And mm-hmm. and it's the process. And, yeah. And so it, be, it becomes a more spontaneous thing, like a Jackson Pollock that dripped and poured mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I, I posted a thing here a couple of weeks ago on Facebook about uh, people would look at a, at a Pollock painting and it's all drippy and runny and stuff and they, go, and they would go, I could do that. What is so special about that? I could do that. And, <laughs> and i and well, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. You, you have no clue. I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, I, I was a, a little kid in the 50s, and I remember abstract expressionist painters. That was a big thing in the art world back then, and it was used, actually, abstract expressionism was used by our government to sort of market, the, and, and it made abstract expressionism bigger. Uh, around the world to sort of market American ingenuity and creativity. Okay? In,
0: in what sense? I remember those pictures. How, what were they thinking when they were...
1: Because they were, they were innovative and different and new okay. and they were the cutting edge of, of art. And I, rem- I remember my dad sitting, looking at a newspaper and it had a Jackson Pollock uh, reproduction of a Pollock painting in it in black and white. And he would, and I remember his words to this day. He said, "I just don't get it. A monkey could do that." And he wasn't. Why did he think? And that? I looked at it like because it was just all drippy, running. No, I know. It seemed so random. Yeah. And and I looked at it and I and I didn't say anything to him, but I looked at that and I went, "Wow, that's pretty cool." You saw it. Yeah. And and I could I understood it. Now maybe that's because I was a little kid and I didn't have built-in notions Yeah, you didn't unlearn things. all this instinct, bit. you know. To yeah. me, it was just like, that is cool. I like that. Mm. And, and I, to this day, I'm a, a, an expressionist fan. I just mm. love this stuff. And I love the notion that you can just sort of splash things, but you can feel the, the composition of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite artists, um, his name is Jim Dine, and I think he's, still alive. He came from that era, but rather than abstract, mm-hmm. he he painted shapes, okay? And and his so it wasn't just splashes of paint or, you know, strokes and that. It was shapes that were done with an abstract expressionist feel to them. So, okay. like he painted bathrobes, okay. He painted tools. Mm-hmm. He painted hearts, you know that, that shape. And w- when asked about it, uh, he, why why are you not just abstracting the canvas? He said, "I'm I'm different in that sense. Um, I need I need to have something to hang the paint on. Mm. So he used the shape to do that. But they were structure. Yeah, yeah. there was a structure that that w- was lent to it." Now, that's the same guy that back in those days, uh, performance art was a kind of big thing. And uh, he he did a performance piece where he was just painting. Uh uh, And uh, I I don't know if I'm getting this exactly right or not, um, but he, he was painting and at the same time he was drinking the paint. And you, I don't think do it that? was, I don't think it was, no, I don't think it was paint, but, but he was pretending to be drinking. <laughs> oh, because the paint. it's performance art. Yeah. Okay. okay and so, right. and what he painted was, as he's drinking the paint and painting, he painted a big canvas that just said, I love what I'm doing. Hmm. And I, I just thought that was the coolest thing hmm. Yeah. to do.
0: Yeah. That is very cool. Well, I have one last question for you. Yeah. Final question. Um, thanks again for taking the time to do this and... I respect you immensely. People love to talk about themselves. (laughs) (laughs) But we're talking about art Everybody does. (laughs) Um, Do you you remember when you saw the light? Like, as a photographer, you know, I shot, I assisted for people, and I I was in photography for a long time before I really understood photography. It sounds like you kind of had a thing when you were very young with art, but do you remember when you saw, really got it,
1: well two, a couple things. First, I, I was extraordinarily fortunate in an unconscious way when, when I was a little kid. Uh, um, my dad was a dentist and I originally planned on following his path and, and to be a dentist. Uh, it's a really good thing that I didn't do that. But, uh, but as a dentist, he, he and some of his friends, they had, you know, he, he made a pretty darn good living, yes, so, yes. so he had a, a fair amount of disposable income, and he and some of his friends would go on these hunting trips up to Carmel, mm-hmm. and they managed to hire, as a guide, mm-hmm. Um, a fellow by the name of Cole Weston, who was one of Edward Weston's sons. Okay, so a okay. relation there, yeah. And, yeah, and he was a he was a theater director and a jack of all trades, and uh, he he managed a trout farm. He had a trout farm, oh. <clears throat> and so my dad and Cole became friends. And Cole, uh, eventually, uh, through another one of my dad's friends, who, who was a. a Vendor at Knott's Berry Farm, Cole started a trout farm at Knott's Berry Farm down here. Oh wow! So. Uh, so you knew that guy. I remember that. Yeah, and Cole had a whole bunch of kids, and he and he didn't make a hell of a lot of money, so he. When he needed dental work done, he would go to my dad, and he'd bring the kids, but he didn't have the money to yep. pay the bills. Yeah. So he traded to my dad a, a portfolio of Edward Weston photographs wow for the for the dental bills and it, two things happened out of that one i got to know cole and and we stayed friends until he passed and and he stayed friends with my dad too plus i got to see when i was 7 years old these little 8x10 contact prints of edward weston's and they were stunningly gorgeous to me and i just literally really attached to them Mm -hmm. but I never thought that I could make a living doing that and obviously Edward Weston the the most money that he ever made in one year in his whole life was five thousand dollars
0: is that right? I didn't know that yeah
1: and and you know he had grants and, and that kind of stuff that kind of kept him going but he lived this very frugal life well I didn't think that that I could do that until after I got out of college uh and was kind of planning on dental school uh, and I was ready to go I took uh, I, I always liked photography and I took a photography class and it happened to be taught by you'll recognize the name I think John Sexton oh right and it was an adult ed here in Fullerton yes and it was in the basement of the Muckenthaler Cultural Arts Center and uh, and I just I fell completely in love he made it so interesting uh, and, and just captivating that I said, I, I have to find a way to do this. And after I got involved with I, and then, then I asked him, I said, John, you know, I really want to do this. And, 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 he, and he and I had become friends. And I said, John, so wh- where, where would I go now? And his answer was Cypress College. Right. Uh, and Why so, did he say that? Because he had gone there. That's, that's where he had gone to school and it, he had gone on then to Chap- Chapman University or Chapman College and um, it was a, it was a good program and I went through the program and, and uh, I wanted to find a way to make a living in photography. I, I originally wanted to, to do something that connected to biology. I wanted to do, become a biological photographer but the schools for that were all in the east okay so, uh, I, I went to Cyprus and I started to learn commercial stuff and you know, got a way to make a living. Also, in John Sexton's class, that first class that I took, I reconnected with a friend of mine from high school who you may have met over at Cyprus because he's been over there several times. Bob Neese, Robert Neese. Oh, I, I might have met
0: him, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And we, we had been friends in high school, I had no idea that he was in photography. And this first class, the, the, the first photography class that I took was the first class that John taught mm. and Bob Niece was in it and mm. it wasn't his first class but it, but it was mine. And we reconnected and we became friends and where this is going is uh, Bob and I were best friends for many, many years and Bob asked me one time, uh, he, he said, so we got involved in this and we're doing this now, he said, when did you know You had it. And that goes back to your question. And I said, you know, Bob, I made a photograph of muddy water that was running in my parents' flower bed. And I made this print and I got the print, I got the print to look exactly the way I wanted. And it was at that moment, I knew I could do this. And I was then, I I was set. Right. and I could make images look the way I wanted them to look right
0: whether it was control. lighting yeah.
1: or printing or, or whatever because mm-hmm. there's always I, I guess he was asking me the question because he had had his own moment when it dawned on him hey I can do this mm-hmm. right And that was my moment was wow. this, this this little 8 by10 print that I made I could do this
0: because you knew that it was a thing that you could do it again
1: yeah yeah I can make this work Mm
0: -hmm. that's cool
1: and and I could have that as my life rather than being a dentist
0: Mm -hmm. right right huge difference
1: yeah yeah and it you know that connected to the music and all of that too were you
0: doing music back then or
1: yeah oh yeah but not I wasn't doing recording back then no no
0: um, you said you started piano when you were five or seven or something seven like that? Seven years old. Seven, yeah. Okay.
1: My dad made me a deal. Uh, I, I took piano for a, a few years. I absolutely hated it. I just, <laughs> God, I just hated it. <laughs> well, it's not it.
0: fun to study piano. It's <laughs> not and, supposed to be fun. And
1: so I finally quit. And then my dad came to me when I was 12 years old. Yeah. And he said, I think that you have talent at this, and I would like you to, to go back and take lessons. And if you take lessons until you graduate from high school, I will buy you a car.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: And so I said, okay, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> what a deal.
0: <laughs> what kind of makes me interested about that is that your dad, number one, supported art, which is that not a lot of dads support or understood art as an occupation. Yeah,
1: even though he was the one that said a monkey could do that Jackson right. Pollock painting. but.
0: He must have liked art, or he must have saw something in you. Or
1: he was really good at drawing, and okay. very, very good with detail in his hands and stuff. He, he could draw draw very realistic things, Maybe but it, but he attached to the realism. He couldn't right. deal with the abstract. the abstract.
0: right, right. Yeah. So he was an artist. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again.